Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. It's episode number 172. Rich Kimball, along with Carrie Haskell, as always. And we're brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two fine conversations for you this week on the program. In the second half, we talk with author Richard Chismar, who has uh, made quite a name for himself writing horror suspense books. He collaborated with Stephen King, one of the few to do that, on uh, Gwendy's Button Box. And then on his own, created the sequel that was terrific, Gwendy's Magic Feather. He's got a brand new book out. It is terrific, called... Chasing the Boogeyman, and a unique approach to the book. We'll talk with Rich Chismar about that in the second half of the podcast this week. But up first, Ellen Foley. What do you know Ellen Foley from? Everybody's got their own thing. Is it Night Court? Uh, is it her work in uh, movies? Is it teaming up with Meatloaf on Paradise by the Dashboard Light? Singing with The Clash? Or her solo work? number of albums through the years, including a brand new one that is terrific and getting rave reviews called Fighting Words. Now, we had Ellen on our radio show a couple of weeks ago for a brief visit, but we had so much fun, we said, well, we need to do it again and go into more detail, and uh, we do that this week on the podcast as we talk about those early collaborations, Meatloaf, The Clash, Ian Hunter, under her work uh, on stage with Stephen Sondheim and film with Milos Forman and legendary choreographer Twyla Tharp, talk about her music, her acting, and more. Here is the delightful Ellen Foley on downtown. I want to talk about the early days here. We had so much fun. We we chatted with you I, just last week, I think, or week before about the new album, and we'll talk more about that, but, but we had so much fun. I wanted to go back and, and dig a little deeper. First of all, when did you know you had this amazing instrument? Is, did I hear somewhere along the way that you used to audition by by singing Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger? Yes, I did. I, 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 that, that, that got me my first major role in the play in sixth grade. I sang gold, a finger, you know, as about this big. And the nuns were like, what in the world? Let's get the exorcist in here. But yeah, so I, that, that was my, that was my first big break singing Goldfinger. And then the, then I got into the play, which was, I mean, it's very sweet when you think of it. It was, it was original. And um, uh, it was about a boy who was on the river and met different people and had adventures. And I sang people. So I went from Shirley Bassey to Barbara Streisand. So I think I kind of had a, a sense of my power, quote unquote, back then. That's wonderful. And you made the decision pretty young. Were you 21 when you decided to move to New York City? I, would, I, t- I turned 21 the day before. And uh, I, you know, it, I would made it slightly easier because I had a boyfriend who was a New Yorker. So we packed up all our stuff, drove to New York. I had no idea how big Pennsylvania was. That was the first shock. <laughs> <laughs> like we were in Pennsylvania for days, and and moved uh, moved here to New York. And and got uh, an early big break uh, by being cast in the tour of the National Lampoon Show. Now, was that Lemmings? No, there was the Lemmings show, 
which was the spoof on Woodstock, and the National Lampoon Show was, was I don't think it had any cohesive theme <laughs> at all. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of sketches. And the one that stands out for me most that I remember was I was a girl. I was very up and very optimistic. Uh, and when I walked into my apartment, I threw up my hat and it dropped in front of me because I was blind. <laughs> I was blind. A little take and, on Mary Tyler Moore there. Correct. <laughs> and uh, Meatloaf was my boyfriend. And he came in and uh, he, he did just unspeakable things to me. But the thing I remember most is that he was barking like the dog, like my dog, and humping my leg. So that was pretty much the level of uh, entertainment that we were putting out there. Now, was he Meatloaf at the time, or was he still Marvin? No, he was Meatloaf. You know, because he, he had been doing theater. Well, I'll go back. He had had, um, uh, uh, he had a record deal. He was in Detroit. It was Stoney and Meatloaf. It was he and a, a female singer. So he was definitely Meatloaf then. I mean, he tells the story. He began being Meatloaf when, uh, when he was playing football in college, <laughs> high school. I don't know if there was college involved. High school, and he stepped on his coach's foot, and the guy said, get off my foot, you big meatloaf. <laughs> I'm sure that's just one of the versions. <laughs> so meatloaf is involved in the National Lampoon Show and Jim Steinman. Yes. Jim uh, uh, was the uh, musical director, well, you know, which involved just him. He, was, he played the piano. Um, and, you know, because it was, it was a review with music and they must, they were original songs. I'm sorry. I have very little recollection other than my leg being humped <laughs> by meat. Um, and Jim was in the middle of writing the bad out of hell material. So he, uh, he, he wanted to, uh, tag along and be around meat when, uh, he was writing it. So it would be a collaboration between the two of them. And you've said uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, stop right there. Those three words changed your life. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would have done something. I was having a bunch of success a few years later, not too long later. I was on this show, Three Girls Three. I was on Broadway, other television. I certainly could have continued in that vein and had a successful career, but... I got, I got a music career, which is the thing that's most important to me, with those three words written by Jim Steinman. There was a, a great story of a baseball coach, college baseball coach around here many years ago, was driving in a car with some assistant coaches and, and was scanning the radio and said, let's see if we can find a baseball game. And uh, <laughs> they said, oh, there's Phil Rizzuto. Ah. Oh my God. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, in you come with stop right there. He's, what the hell happened to the scooter? What the hell? <laughs> I hope he didn't run into a tree. You know, Rizzo, apparently Rizzuto, you know, they just brought him in and he just did his part. Um, I don't know how they got him and I don't know what they told him. But when when he heard the finished product, he was he was he was uh, scandalized <laughs> that he was a part of something so dirty. 
We are talking with Ellen Foley on downtown. Now, you did your first solo album, and, uh, man, I love the album so much when it came out. Uh, Night Out, some great songs on there. Working uh, with Ian Hunter and with Mick Ronson, how was that process? It was very good. You know, like back then, after the meatloaf thing, things just sort of snowballed in a very natural way because I got involved with Steve Popovich, who... You know, discovered meatloaf. Really, I mean, you have to say that. Put out "Bad Out of Hell." Uh, you know, grabbed onto me to put me in his his stable. Yeah, was that you Cleveland? Know, Cleveland and, International. Cleveland International, yeah. right? You know, Steve uh, moved to Cleveland. I'm I don't know if he ever lived in New York, but you know, he was like a fabled A and R guy. A and R is our. I'm telling for the audience. What is it? Artists and repertoire, repertoire, I guess. When they was the, the guys who discovered people and signed. So he was at CBS. He was at Epic. He sound signed huge groups, and they gave him his own label. So, uh, yeah, he he. he um, we did demos. I spent you know a couple of years looking for material, and at that point, um, he introduced me to Ian and Mick, and we did some demos. All the work we did. A pre-production was up at uh, Bearsville Studios. That's Todd Rundgren's studio right. in Woodstock, where "Bad Out of Hell" had been recorded. Uh, one of my favorite songs on the album, uh, "We Belong to the Night," you co-wrote. Correct. We belong to the night. And, yeah, and, and you had bigger success with that album in Europe than you did here in America. Was that was that just a lack of label push behind you and promotion and all those things? I would have to say probably, probably. I mean, that I, you know, that was the era of uh, palms being greased. <laughs> you know, the that was that was the when payola was king, and uh, maybe there wasn't a budget to uh, to buy buy radio for me here. But you know, I still perform. I'm going over there mm. in a few months uh, to Holland and Belgium and France in Germany and I'm going to try to get over to England because I definitely had success there and you know my new record is getting such positive uh, response and a lot of press from over there so I would hope to get there. Uh, you worked uh, as we know with The Clash on, on a couple of their albums uh, Sandinista uh, was that as a result of your relationship with Mick Jones at the time which was the chicken which was the egg there? No I, it was it was because uh, we were dating and um they were working on Sandinista, and at the same time, uh, we decided to do a record for me. And so I was like, I never felt like I was just wedged in, you know, um, doing uh, um, sessions or anything like that for my record. But it was around the same time, and they were all involved. It, it was, it was, it was cool. It was great. Right, so is it truth or urban legend that should I stay or should I go is based on urban you? Urban legend. It's not true. No. It's not true. No. <laughs> if, if you had known that relationship, you would know that that did not represent the relationship. Uh, Darling, you know, please, I'll love you till the end of time. Not happening, Carol. <laughs> uh, later on, uh, you'd get back together with Jim Steinman for Pandora's Box and, and another Another example of great songs, great work that I don't think got the audience it deserved, including uh, 
a tour de force for any actor, the one ad. Right, right. Oh, my God. You know, I have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> I did the want ad uh, in the same show that I first sang Heaven Can Wait, uh, show Neverland, uh, that was Jim's right. musical, that, you know, contained all the elements that Bad Out of Hell did and everything uh, after that. Um, did it in D.C. at the Kennedy Center, and my character, who was Wendy, you know, was it was the Lost Boys story. Wendy, I did the one to add and also sang Heaven Can Wait. So, man, I had some juicy stuff going on in that show. You also worked with one of the great songwriters in the history of rock and pop music, uh, Ellie Greenwich. And that, uh, to me, that's just a, a combination made in music heaven. I know. Well, on my, se- on my third album, there were a couple of tracks that she wrote and that um yeah, that we wrote together. I, there's a song in there called Boys in the Attic, which I think is so great. Mm. I mean, I, I keep thinking that if I had had the kind of support that I do now, I mean, I have an amazing uh, PR guy. His name's Randy Haker. And, and you know, he I, I don't know if he ever sleeps. But if I had had his kind of push that I'm getting now for some of the other stuff I did, I mean, those that you know, the songs with Ellie, I mean, come on. People should have heard that. Well, it's similar to the last album that you did with uh, Paul Faglino, uh, About Time. Some great songs on there. I Love Nobody Ever Died from Crying. Some really good music. But again, it didn't It didn't seem to get the push that it deserved. No. It, you know, I was not in any um, position. You know, there was no record label, but and there, but there was no machine, machinery behind it. And, I, you know, I sing. I've been singing every day now because I actually have a gig in October. So I didn't sing for the last year and a half, but now I'm singing every day and I sang to those songs and they're really good. That record mm-hmm. about time, it's good. We talked a little bit with you uh, last time you were on about uh, creating the role of the witch for Stephen Sondheim uh, in Into the Woods out, out in San Diego. And we've talked to a few people through the years who who worked with Sondheim. Um, he had some pretty firm ideas of what he wanted. Was was there a level of collaboration in developing that character in the music? I don't think, yeah, yeah, I don't, gosh. Um, I remember that he taught me himself at the piano. There's there's a, uh, a thing that the witch does, it's a rap. And it's about, you know, her garden, and it's amazing. And so he and I were at the piano doing it, and he was teaching me. I mean, it, it usually didn't work like that. You had the music director, and but but it was a really one-on-one thing. So, I mean, I, that's as cool. I, I would not, it's like Steinman. You know, you don't, you don't uh, assume to call yourself a collaborator. You're, you're a slave to the, to the genius. I love that show. I've uh, directed it a couple of times with high school kids. And I always love the reaction of the audience at intermission when they say, oh, I, yeah, that's such a beautiful show. I, I thought it was over. I said, oh, oh you don't even know what's coming that's in Act right. 2. Believe me, when we did it, they thought it was over. <laughs> you, that's right. We, we talked about that yeah. the last time. I think uh, that show for high school kids is the most perfect, the most perfect, because it's about fairy tales. But, you know, I don't know if, if the kids are going to get all the the Bruno Benelheim, you know, <laughs> implications, but uh, it's wonderful. And you got to get yourself a good witch. 
And oh, man. had a real show-offy little girl that did that part. Yeah, oh, yeah. We had, well, we had, I got lucky both times. I had a, I had a young woman with a big voice and uh, a whole lot of attitude. Good. That's what you need. And, boy, to sing, children will listen. It's not just yeah. children. That's one of those where the audience is on the edge of the seat hanging with every word. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. And, you know, I, that's another song. I haven't sung in a long time, but I did uh, after I did the show and after I had children sang it. Mm. And all these songs like that, of course, it changes. And like Heaven Can Wait, the difference between singing that when you're when you're 25 and when you're not <laughs> When I'm seeing it now, the mo- the whole thing about mortality and and hope and just, yeah, everything changes with time, you know. I did some great film work uh, as well. I, I when the word came out that Milos Forman was going to make a film version of Hair, I I remember at the time thinking, well, I love the musical, but I don't know, is that a is it a relic of the '60s? Man, it wasn't. It was such a it was such a great film. An incredible cast uh, with Treat Williams and uh, man, your work uh, doing that that great scene with uh, choreographed by Twyla Tharp. How awesome oh. was that? I'm telling you, I say it, it's one of the top five days of my life. Filming that in Central Park, mm. looking friggin' cool with your hair out, and and the tw- and the Twyla choreography. Somehow I got that. So she had. She brought me. I mean, I'm not a dancer. She brought me back to to be in a scene in the the LSD scene with her company. So it was me and Twyla's dancers, which I was like, and I got to hang out with them. I remember we went to to dance clubs and I'm dancing. With, anyway, I'm getting off track. Um, but wow, what a day! What a fun frigging day! And and the choreography. Uh, you know, it was black boys. The choreography involved these gorgeous black guys playing basketball, woven around us. Awesome. And really, a foreman made New York City in many ways a character in the film. That's right. I have to watch it again because it was such a beautiful movie, and the way they portrayed the end of it, which is just, mm. just heartrending. Yeah. You know. It's certainly fleshed out because the play is really, you know, it's not a, that much of a play. It's it's a it's a lot of vignettes with the, you know, these care. You know, when you're in it, you try to find your character. But you know, this this was. I'm trying to remember who Michael Weller wrote this script or something. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really became something. Uh, it's kind of become a cult classic uh, over the years. What was your experience making Cocktail? Um, cocktail was fun. Let me think. They dragged us up to Toronto in the middle of winter. And, uh, you know, as they say about Toronto, but you're up there, there's probably Canadians listening. Uh, You know, (laughs) oh, Toronto, it's very clean. Toronto (laughs) is very clean. So, I don't know. Uh, But it was fun. You know, there were all those scenes, you know, with all tons of extras, hundreds of people, with the, um, you know, the guys doing all the thing. I got to have a scene with Tom Cruise where he calls me a bitch. And I say, yeah, but I am a bitch. You know, so those 10 seconds in the film for me were pretty cool. <laughs> I love your work on Night Court as Billy Young. She was such a great and strong character, a phenomenal ensemble. Uh, how, how 
was that experience at the time for obviously disappointing and not staying with the show? It, um, it was hard for me because I, I was I was really just plucked out of my life. I think I what I think happened is they wanted Marky Post, but she had dropped out. So they had to find somebody. So they found me and I, you know, I was in L.A. and, you know, feeling kind of uh, like a fish out of water. But I mean, being around the people that I was and, you know, being able to learn from Laura Cat, Selma Diamond. Geez, who gets to, who got to hang out with Selma Diamond? But um, yeah, I was it was a little lonely because everybody had their homes and their uh, their families, and I was just I don't know. Uh, I, I one thing I'll say about L.A. was back when I was going out with Mick Jones, we were at the Chateau Marmont Hotel, and I'm a New Yorker, so. We were staying there and I was, I'm going to go take a walk. So I start walking down the street and these cops pull over and they say, can we help you, miss? They thought I was a hooker because I was, <laughs> I was walking down the street. So, you know, it's kind of my experience of, of LA. It, it would be different, you know, if I had, if I had felt, but it was fun. It was, it was okay. It was okay. But it was another thing when it ended that was okay with me because I got on with my life. Yeah, you've done you've done so many so many different things through the years. People may not be aware that uh, you taught at uh, what we know commonly as the School of Rock. That's right, Paul Green School of Rock was there for a few years, and that's when Paul Green was there. And he's completely wild. Although I've been seeing on Facebook recently that that he just uh, got his law degree, so I guess he settled down. He went to law school. He's a brilliant guy, but you know, nuts. And uh, I, I did some uh, work. You know, the, the cool thing about it was that the, it was, uh, the school was divided up in groups and every group would be working on a show that was material. One kid would be doing, one group would be doing The Who, another, you know, The Stones um, and like that. So I was able to work with kids on great music. And, you know, I worked with them vocally, but it was made, mainly interpretation got him to work on the songs. We uh, we talked about the new album, and just since we spoke with you a couple of weeks ago, but continues to, to do great, uh, getting a lot of buzz, tremendous reviews. It's got to feel good for people to appreciate all of your hard work with this new album. It really does. It's, it was, it's really unexpected because, it's like I said, our last record, we just put it out, and Paul Faglino, who's the writer, who's my partner, he's like, yeah, whatever, I'll put it on CD, baby, and see what happens. But uh, we got our our PR guy and, you know, put it out in a real way. And, and yeah, tremendous amount of, of, and it feels so great. It feels like, okay, this is happening. And if, and if nothing happens after this for a few years, that'll be fine because I did this. But I'm going to, we have a gig in New York. And like I said, I'm going to Europe. I really want to get up on stage. I really do. I haven't been for a while, you as many people. Do you miss that? I do. I didn't think I did until all this this record sort of sort of took off, and then I'm thinking, yeah, I I want to get up and do this record and all the other stuff I've been singing for years. It'll all work so beautifully together. 
we talked about some of the songs on there with you. I don't think we brought up the, the fantastic cover version you do of uh, Wilson Pickett's I Found a Love. Yeah, that's fun, right? Love that. It's great. Um, you know, an old white woman, you know, getting down a little <laughs> bit. I always say that to me, it's my version of, of, it would be my version of James Brown falling to the ground and they come and put the cape on him and they walk him out. But I would get on the ground and somebody would have to help me up because I had bad knees and put on my raincoat and my plastic rain hat and my little handbag. So that's kind of, no, that was fun. That was really because we had we had done it live. So I really I had the juice going on. That. Also love the groove uh, you, you lay down on Be Nice. Cool, right? Mm. It's uh, it's it's unlike other stuff and unlike other stuff I've sung. But but Paul has kind of pushed me in um, in other directions. And it's a very cool, I like to say it's kind of a, a sneaky, a sneaky groove, you know. And it's it's got all sorts of um, allusions, you know, biblical. And it's it's one of the couple songs on the record where there's, you know, a woman of experience is is, is handing out some advice. This this one to the guys. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean being being so talented in so many areas has that uh, has that given you the opportunity to have a level of control that that not everybody gets over your career have you been able to to pick and choose a bit more than somebody who who could perhaps only do one thing well well i did do a lot of things you know it it wasn't about even you know it's it's been a long time since i've wanted to be out there and be on the stage and be doing an eight show a week uh, show. But, you know, it's, I think I'm picking and choosing right now in that I'm choosing to do exactly what I want to do and, and be in control. Yeah. Helen, thank you so much. Great to have a more uh, in-depth conversation with you this afternoon. I'm so glad the album is getting the recognition it deserves, and it's great to have a chance to talk a little more with you. Thanks, Rich. So much fun to talk with Ellen Foley. The new album is called Fighting Words, and, and she is rocking out as good as always and sounded great on the new album check that out we'll take a little break right now get a word from cross insurance when we come back author richard chismar discusses chasing the boogeyman here on downtown since its founding in 1954 cross insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in bangor maine into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in new england with the network of offices throughout new england cross insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you your family and your business we are proud to be the official insurance broker of the new england patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team for more information visit crossinsurance.com cross insurance where security meets strength.
That's the opening track from Ellen Foley's new album, Finding Words, called Are You Good Enough? Up next on the podcast, Rich Chismar joining us. He's been on before, a terrifically talented writer, teamed up with Stephen King for Gwendy's Button Box, that novella. Did the follow-up on his own, Gwendy's Magic Feather. He has a new novel out. It is terrific, and he's designed it in a very unique way, so it, it reads like a true crime book. And he becomes a central character in the story. Here's Richard Chismar talking about the brand new Chasing the Boogeyman. Rich, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for asking me. I have to tell you, you'll appreciate this. The last time I was as nervous (laughs) reading a book at night was when I was a kid in high school reading Salem's Lot. And it was that same sensation that every sound in the room, I uh, I was convinced... Somebody was there. This is a, just an absolutely wonderful book. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. That's that's the goal. I, I want uh, I want to give uh, you know readers some sleepless nights. Well, I particularly love the structure and the way you set this up as a as a true crime novel, uh, which uh, caused me to go back a couple different times and, and reread the introduction and the afterward just to make sure because it it rang so true in the reading. Yeah, you know, my initial my initial idea um, was to kind of try to do a Blair Witch project where I passed it all off as real. And, uh, you know, once I sold it to Simon & Schuster, their lawyers got involved very quickly and, and decided that was a really bad idea, Rich. And, and we're going to stamp no- a novel right on the front cover and we're going to, uh, um, you know, make, you know, make sure you include disclaimer pitch right in the front they wanted to make sure that that folks knew it was uh it was uh you know a, a work of fiction even though you know there, there are quite a few you know factual events in there especially in my past but uh they were a little bit worried that uh if i tried to pass this off as as uh you know a true crime book that uh that there might be some legal issues so yeah but the nice thing is is just a lot of the early reviewers have even said that they've uh you know they've googled you know they've stopped reading long <laughs> enough to google the victims names and and specific incidents just uh because they weren't convinced that it wasn't real i wonder if somewhere the fondler is proud that he inspired you well what's interesting is he he was finally caught and, and i didn't go or maybe i did i can't even remember it actually but he, he was never caught for the incident. Uh, in Edgewood. And what's interesting is in my memory, which is very good, you know, I have a writer's memory, so I tend to remember, uh, you know, these, these details, but my, my brain told me that this is something that happened a half a dozen times or so, the Phantom Fondler breaking into people's homes and caressing sleeping women's hair and their legs and then escaping into the night. But uh, it wasn't the case. He actually did this over 30 times and was never caught. Um, for those crimes. And then in the 90s, he was arrested in Baltimore City for a completely unrelated crime, and he admitted to these crimes, and the evidence they, that they that the police had matched up, so they knew that his admission was, was accurate. Well, you've taken that notion and, and ratcheted it up considerably uh, by creating the story of a serial killer dubbed the Boogeyman uh, taking place in your hometown of Edgewood, Maryland, and you become a key player in that story, what what are the writing challenges that go with making yourself not just a character, but really the person that we see the entire story through your eyes? I think I, I, I think if 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 someone came to me and said, "Hey, I want to kind of 
you know, use that as a, as a starting, as a jumping off point for a book of my own. I, the biggest piece of advice I'd give them is, you know, just that you have to really fight to be honest. If, if you're going to do that, you, you have to really make sure that you're coming from a, a, an honest viewpoint and that you're portraying yourself as, as you actually were, or as you actually believe you would be. Um, you know, that, that was, you know, as far as for me, the challenge is, what was interesting is it ended up being kind of a breeze. You know, usually I finish a book and I'm, you know, exhausted and saying how much it took out of me. And this one, in some ways, it was no different because it was so personal. But it was really a breeze of a book to write and um, at times almost felt self-indulgent because I was writing about my past. And I was writing about, you know, my parents who, who are no longer with us. But during the three or four months I spent writing this book, they were right there. And, you know, I was living in the, in my old house with them and having dinner with them. And my friends were, were mostly still, you know, in the small town I grew up in. And, uh, that was just, you know, it, it was, it was an enjoyment from start to finish. We're talking with Richard Chismore about his new book, Chasing the Boogeyman, uh, along with the crime and the mystery and trying to solve what's going on. A couple of things that bookended the book made it ring so powerful to me. The first one is the description of, of growing up in Edgewood, which seems like it wasn't all that different from growing up here in Bangor, Maine. But the wonderful stories about the, the universal things that, that kids, particularly young boys, do in growing up, just, uh, man, that just put me right there. Oh, well, good. Thank you. Yeah, I, that, you know, it, it's interesting. I, uh I, I did a podcast about a week ago, and they, they asked me how many of those memories were really accurate. You know, and did you embellish? And I said, no. I, I said, <clears throat> you know, the, the entire book is a mixture of fact and fiction, but the, the stuff from my childhood and, and the, the growing up period, it, it, I, it's all true. I, I said, I ways those stories kind of too sacred to mess around with. And plus, plus, there's no reason to embellish them. Half of them were. You know, my kids, my two sons, love hearing about that stuff because they can't exactly happen. Um, it was such a different world back in the eighties. Well, and I and, do think it's universal. And about a decade before that, it wasn't a whole lot different. As a matter of fact, I I yeah. laughed out loud at the story because uh, me and my idiot friends did a similar thing, constructing a ramp for our bicycles and completely misjudging how much height and distance you could achieve. <laughs> yes. Yes, and, and what you said, you know, before is, is really accurate, and that and that's what I was hoping for. And I think it's partly why Stephen King, you know, books are, are so successful, or why initially in the beginning, you know, writing about these small towns where, you know, readers pick it up and they're either reliving, in some cases, their own memories, or they're they're experiencing memories of how they wish their childhood was. And, and you know, uh, writing about Edgewood, every you know, I said it. Every town has a haunted house. Every town has a wrong side of the tracks, and every ha town has their own set of legends and, and rumors and, and, you know, that type of thing. And uh, uh, so I'm glad that, that it resonated with you. It's also a beautiful uh, evocation of fall. And uh, just, God, it just takes you right there. You can you can see the leaves on the ground, and that that sense of normalcy and beauty that you create stands in such stark contrast to the horror that it makes it even more frightening. And that's, yeah, yeah, and that's interesting because the book in itself, if I had to kind of roll it all up into a neat little package, I would say, you know, it's about, you know, myself as a 22-year-old, um, you know, experiencing alongside the entire town that I grew up in, th this loss of innocence and this, uh, 
kind of you know having yourself open your 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 heart and your soul exposed to a you know a bigger world and uh yeah i, I mean i uh again I, you 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 read this with with a kind ear and i appreciate that uh, we know, obviously, Kara is a real character, and your parents and and some of the friends from your childhood. I, I, I so want the the lieutenant, who's such a big part of the story, to be real. Uh, did he come from some folks that you've met in your lifetime? You know, he was kind of a collection. You know, kind of a combination of of several different people. And the same thing goes for uh, Carly Albright, who who is the who seems to be everybody's you know favorite character, and and uh, they kind of love the fact that she's this kind of spunky, sassy, you know, young lady. And uh, yeah, she's she is definitely a combination of several different people who I know. But all the other names, for the most part, especially in the uh, you know the looking back section of me growing up, they're they're actual friends. And again, the the Simon and Schuster lawyers had a had a field day making sure I had you know permission <laughs> permission forms you know filled out and signed by by all of these people. I had to make sure that uh, you know there's a lot of paperwork involved. <laughs> I also love the fact, and, and you mentioned Carly. I love the fact that uh, the character of Rich Chismar uh, has has his significant other, has his fiance, but then also has this great uh, partner in crime solving uh, in a female. And I thought that that added a whole new dimension to it. Yeah, you know, when I finished the book, um, it, it's interesting. The first couple people who read it, the, the, to a person, came back and said, please tell me Carly Albright exists. And I had to say, oh, I hate to break your heart, but no. <laughs> you know, she does, but in the form of several people. Um, I, I just, you know, when I finished the book, I, I knew that uh, I really liked, you know, her. And, you know, having the, the detective kind of dismissively refer to us as, you know, as, as one of the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, <laughs> you know, it just kind of fit because, again, it's it's such a, you know, it, it, in many ways, it's such a, an innocent campfire story. But uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, the, the, the everyday Americana kind of Norman Rockwellian, you know, uh, lifestyle, it, it, it clashes so you know, so harshly against the, the dark parts of the book that, that I, you know, again, that was my hope is that it would kind of keep people, you know, unsettled throughout the reading experience. Well, and, and much like Stephen King, your descriptions of, of people and of place are, are so vivid and you bring them to life so much that it, to me, was a very cinematic book. I, I could certainly uh, see somebody wanting to make this into a film at some point. Yeah, I hope so. There's there's definitely been some film interest, and uh, you know, speaking of the relationship that you just mentioned, I you know that's it wasn't something that I did, um, you know, consciously. But when I was finished, I did think, well, you know, the idea that that you know you have this 22 year old you know male lead character, and he is so he's working so closely with this female who they're simply friends, and there's a you know there's a mutual respect there. Um, I thought that's you know that's perfect for today's movie audience. You know, it, 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 I think it would make for an interesting uh, you know film. And one of the other things that I love so much about this book, I, I love being scared. I think we all do, but what scares me most is what we don't see. It's it's what's in your mind that's most horrifying. And and without giving anything away here from the book, it's it's the things that we think we saw, or we think you saw, or you might have seen that are often the most frightening parts of chasing the boogeyman. Absolutely. I, I you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, not wanting to show too much of the monster or the shark. Um, 
And I just thought, you know, this, this, this guy, you know, who's responsible for these terrible beats, he's, uh, you know, whether we want to accept it or not. And it's interesting because in the book, I read, you know, at Carly kind of takes me to task and says, you know, right. not all these killer, <laughs> killers are Hannibal Lecter, you know, but in this case, this guy's pretty darn smart and uh, ingenious. And, uh, you know, he's only caught, you know, you know, many years later. So it, it, the idea that he was, you know, part of the shadows, you know, in this town, much like the Phantom Fondler is, is definitely something I was going after. I didn't see the ending coming at all, which is always a, a great sign. Now, when you're when you're crafting a book like this, because you've, you've got to be conscious of making sure that there's a logical trail and that things make sense, but uh, do you do it in a linear fashion, or uh, do you have some sort of an outline so you know how you're going to get to that final destination? Uh, you know, it varies from book to book for me. Um, with this book, the ideas and furious that I actually did jot down in the form of a, almost like a miniature outline. Um, so I did know where I was going. I did know, you know, how the, what the end result was going to be and how it was going to happen. And, and it's actually based on a real case. Um, but yeah, you know, some books I'm just kind of being taken for the ride. This one, um, and, and I'm not sure whether I might be stealing another of Steve King's, you know, descriptions, but, uh, you know, I said this story was kind of there in its entirety, and I was actually just kind of brushing debris and sand away <laughs> to expose the story as opposed to having to create it. It, was, it just felt like it came so fully formed. Well, it is an absolutely wonderful book, a thrill a minute. Uh, I, I read it quickly, and I, I would advise not reading it late at night. That's just from me <laughs> personally, but uh, so good. Chasing the Boogeyman, the brand-new one from Richard Chismar. Rich, thank you so much for being with us. We uh, appreciate the time and wish you much success with this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on again. Take care. Fun conversation. Terrific book, Chasing the Boogeyman, Rich Chismar, with us on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Rich, thanks to the wonderful Ellen Foley as well, and to you for visiting with us this week. Leave a big old five-star review if you haven't done so already. We'd appreciate that. Subscribe, tell your friends, and be sure to join us next time for another edition of Downtown the Podcast.